Have you ever found yourself saying something like this? God, just give me a sign. Just give me a sign. Show me something specific so that I know what I'm supposed to do or I know that I'm not alone. You ever said that? I have. I think a lot of times when we're going through difficult days, we would want God to show us something miraculous to help us maybe have confidence that we're on the right track. Or there may be others who don't know God. They've never encountered Christ in salvation. And they would say to you or to another believer that, well, if, you just, if God would just show me a sign to prove that He's real, you know, if God would just do this, then I would believe. Maybe you've heard people talk like that. Today we're going to talk about some people that wanted a sign from the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about signs. And Jesus is going to be confronted with some who are demanding that He show them a sign. This is something that happened already in the Gospel of Matthew, but it's going to happen again here. And so I want to read you this text, just four verses in chapter 16 of Matthew, beginning in verse 1. There the Bible says, Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. If you're somebody who's a member of West Park Baptist Church or somebody that comes here regular as we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew, this, this passage of Scripture may sound familiar. It's because a similar thing happened back in Matthew chapter 12, right? Matthew 12, verse 38 and 39, the Bible says there, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So this is something that's happened before. The same group of people coming to Jesus, wanting him to perform on their schedule in their way. And so we see the, here in verse 1, the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming together to confront Jesus again. I believe that it is important for us to recognize that we, we, don't, we don't point out enough that the Pharisees and the Sadducees doing anything together is in that, that day and in that time would have been an insane proposition. Hear me when I say that. These groups hated each other. They despised one another. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they were bitter enemies in every aspect. They were rivals for positions of power. They had huge doctrinal disagreements. They just didn't like each other. 
right? It was the, the Pharisees would have been considered the extreme conservatives in the world of Judaism, and the Sadducees would have been considered the extreme liberal wing of first century Judaism. These people hated each other. And yet, they will here, and in many other places in the New Testament, come together in their opposition to Jesus. Now, I want you to imagine what would happen if, as crazy as it might sound in our modern day, if every... Uh, person in, in the Republican Party and every person in the Democratic Party came together and said, hey, we got to oppose this guy right here. Now, depending on what you think about politics in these days, you may think, man, that guy's done something really wrong or that guy's done something really right, right? And this is the case here. These groups come together in their opposition to Jesus. I want you to know that the world and the enemies of Christ, that, that they may be groups uh, of all stripes, groups of all flavors out there. Whether you're talking about, uh, you know, atheistic people who are out there in, in full opposition to the gospel, or you're talking about other faith traditions that would oppose Christ, other religious groups that would oppose Christ, I think that there, there has been times, there can... There, in days past, there continues to be times today, and there will be more and more times in the future where these groups come together with all of their differences simply in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. The world will join arms in their opposition to Jesus. I believe there will come a day when it will, in fact, be the people of God versus everyone else. And we will have to decide where we stand. I think, that, that, I think that's happening in a lot of places already. I think it's happening in small episodes even in our own nation. But go, go to some of these countries. Go to some of these countries, even places that we think of as being part of the modern Western world. Go somewhere like, like the United Kingdom and preach about the truth of the, a biblical sexual ethic and find out quickly. Make a post on the internet on some social media platform that just says, hey, you know, God says that marriage is between one man and one woman and that that's the only confines in which a sexual relationship is right and good. Say something as simple as that. You can end up in court. You can end up sued. You can end up in some of these places, again, even in modern countries, that behind bars. It's happening. There's pastors in, in Canada that are still facing consequences for preaching the gospel during the time when their government said that they, they didn't need to do that during the pandemic. Friends, there are times and there are places already where those that you would think would be strange bedfellows will come together to oppose what is right and good and underneath the banner of Christ. The Bible says the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to him. Why did they come? The Bible says they came to test him. They came testing him, tempting him. It's important, again, that we recognize these, these guys didn't really want proof. Okay? They didn't want proof. They had seen themselves and heard 
of much of what Jesus had done. They had been following him with great interest because it was impacting how people were thinking about them. As they began to see Jesus and all that he was doing, and they began to think about him in the light of him being the Messiah, it was, it was taking away from the prestige of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They had had an eye on him for a while at this point in the Gospels. There's no way that many of them had not been a witness to some miraculous thing or another during the ministry of Christ. They, they, didn't, they weren't wanting real proof. Their hearts were hardened against Jesus. We saw that way back when they, had, when they saw him cast out demons from someone and they accused him of doing it in the power of, uh, in the power of Satan. And Jesus said that they were blasphemers and that they were sinning and blaspheming the Holy Spirit. If he had shown them a sign right here when they asked him to, it didn't, wouldn't have mattered what he did. They already had their playbook. They would have accused him of being in league with the devil or something else. I'm going to tell you something that's hard to hear, but it's the truth of the Bible. A person who is hardened in their unbelief will not see or hear the truth no matter what they're shown. Okay, I'm not saying that someone who's hardened can't come to Christ, but I'm saying if someone is set in their opposition to the truth, it doesn't matter if Jesus himself showed up and stood right here and said, this is who I am, this is what's happened, this is the reality of things, they wouldn't hear it. It's the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. When the rich man is in torment and he asks that someone be sent to his brothers so that they might not suffer the same consequences that he was suffering in the torment of the judgment for his sin. And what is he told? He's told that if they did not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if one rises from the dead to tell them. Friends, this is why we need to spend less time arguing and more time simply proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Because it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the proclamation that Jesus has come, that he has died on the cross for sins, that he was laid in the tomb, that he has risen from the grave. It, it is that proclamation that the Spirit of God can and will use in his own good time, in his own good pleasure, in his own good will to draw people to himself. I dare say no one's ever been argued into the kingdom of God. We proclaim the truth. And we let the Spirit of God do the things that only the Spirit of God can do. You can't be someone's Holy Spirit. Neither can I. I can't break through the hardness of someone's heart. And neither can you. Salvation is of the Lord, but we are in the business of proclamation. The problem is that unbelievers just as we were once, unbelievers want things on their own terms. Matter of fact, most Christians, myself included, we want things on our own terms a lot of times, don't we? Unbelievers want things on their own terms. They say, if God will do this and this and this and this, and then I'll believe him. Jesus is no one's genie in a bottle. He's the Lord of glory. How dare we? 
Jesus came on the terms of his Father in heaven, doing what his Father in heaven had ordained him to do. He wasn't coming down here putting on miracles for the sake of miracles. His miracles were for a purpose. Every miracle that Jesus did showed that he was the Messiah, showed that he was God in the flesh who had power over this world. He had power over sickness. He had power over death. He had power over nature. He had power over creation. His miracles had a purpose. He wasn't here putting on a dog and pony show. He's the Lord of glory. I heard a preacher say this week something that has just resonated in my mind and he was speaking about Isaiah and when Isaiah was in the temple and he was given the vision of the, of the Lord on his throne and how the, how the train of God filled all of the temple and the glory of the Lord was around him. And he was talking about the glory of God in that sense and he, here's what he said. He said, understand something when Isaiah saw all of this going on and he fell on his face and he was overwhelmed by the glory and the power and, the, and, uh, and all who God is that wasn't that God told the cherubim and the seraphim hey boys today let's put on a good show because Isaiah's coming that's just a regular day in heaven the glory of the Lord shining on in, in, in power and in glory and and I thought about that, and it's the, in the same sense, this is the reality that, that Jesus is doing things in His glory, in His power, in His own way, according to the will of the Father, and He doesn't have to put on a show for anyone because His glory goes on. His glory is constant. Jesus wasn't going to put on a show for His enemies. You've got to be careful that we, even as Christians, even if you're here and you're someone who believes on Christ, that we don't get in this business of telling God what He's going to do and when He's going to do it. We can pray and ask God for anything. I think the problem with my... I can speak for myself here, but the problem i got is sometimes I want to hear every answer God will give me except no. The old preacher said one time, God says usually will impress upon us one of three things. Yes, no, or not yet. And I thought about that, and I said, yeah, I think that's right. I said, but I'll tell you what, sometimes God clearly is telling us that no, and we want to persevere in it anyways. We've got to be willing to submit to what God says. Jesus wasn't going to put on a show. He wasn't going to do something that these people wanted because He knew it was of no purpose. They were trying to trap him. They were trying to tempt him. And Jesus had no use for a tempter. He showed us that when he encountered the devil in the wilderness. So Jesus rebukes them in verses 2 and 3. He answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the time. Jesus rebukes them. You ever hear the old saying, red sky at morning, sailors take warning, red sky at night, sailors delight. This is the same thing Jesus is talking about here. This has been an observable pattern of weather in many places. It's the phenomenon that Jesus is referencing here. So why does he bring this up? 
Is it because he's mad at them about being worried about the weather? No. It's because he's pointing out to these religious leaders that they could observe natural signs to have a decent idea about what the weather is, yet these religious leaders, these men who were learned in the Old Testament, they were learned in the prophecies of the Messiah, they, were, they had knowledge of the realities of all that Christ had done, they'd heard it, they'd seen it, and yet they could not discern what was happening right in front of them. Jesus said, you, get the, you can pick out what's going on with the weather, but you've got no idea about what's happening in front of your face, and you're supposed to be the ones that are full of the knowledge that would make this very easy to, to see. They had stuck their, hand, their heads in the sand and saw only what they wanted to see. Jesus calls them hypocrites. Some of your translations omit that word, but I think it, it ought to be there. He says hypocrites. Well, what's a hypocrite? It's someone that acts in direct opposition to what they say they believe. Church gets accused of having the hypocrites in it, and that's probably that's a that's a sound accusation because we're all hypocritical in some area form or, or some area or place in our life. But these Pharisees, these Sadducees, they had they said that their desire was that the Messiah would come and restore all things. They said that their desire was that the Messiah would come and, and, and they'd been looking for Him and looking for Him and looking for Him. And yet here He was. And they wanted no part of Him. Miracle after miracle confirmed who He was. Prophecy after prophecy confirmed who Jesus was. And yet they wanted no part of Him. It was as if Jesus was saying to them, Do you not see? This is what you've been looking for. Here I am. It's easy for us to get mad, get aggravated at these Pharisees and Sadducees. But what about us? We have more access to knowledge than ever before. That's the truth. You know, for a long, long time, it took about 100 years for all of the knowledge in the world, as it were, to, to double. Just information as a, as a group. It, it took about 100 years for worldly knowledge to double. And now that's happening, I, I, I think the last time I looked it up, it's happening every, I think, six to eight months now. That all of the information that just exists in the world is doubling at that rate. And we have access to that in ways that no generation before us has ever had. And here's the other thing, Christian. We have more ability, more tools, more helps, more preaching, more everything to help us study God's Word than ever before. More access. I was in Turkey some years ago and I met a bunch of pastors from Iran and we traveled with them for several days and um, for years they had smuggled Bibles into Iran and at this point all they were doing was smuggling little flash drives in. And I asked them, I said, Brother, why, why do you take the flash drives and not the Bibles? And he said, well, that flash drive is easier to swallow. I said, well, that makes sense. 
right? They could take this little flash drive, and on this flash drive, it had Bibles in their language. It had study materials in their language. It had all kinds of books and things to help them disciple people in their language. Videos, all of these resources. We have more access, more ability to study God's Word than ever before. The light is more accessible than it's ever been, yet we live as if we are in darkness. Sometimes even those who are children of God. There are those who are calling themselves Christians, or you want to call them as these men were, you want to call them religious people. Maybe they have Christ, maybe they don't, but there are those who are religious Christians who refuse to acknowledge Christ for who and what He is. That's a hypocrite. Who is Christ? He is Lord of all. He is Master of all. He is the God of salvation. This is who Jesus is, and yet there are many who would relegate Him to something else. They would say Jesus is a faithful teacher. Jesus had some moral ideas that were good. Jesus was one of the greatest men who ever lived. And to that we must, from the biblical Christian position, say blasphemy. Jesus is more than a teacher. He is more than a good man. Jesus is more than a philosopher. Jesus is God in the flesh. The God-man who came and laid down his life for those who would believe on him. He is more than just another idea or pathway. He is the one who says he's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. The pluralistic world out there wants to just put Jesus in this whole pile of, uh, of religions in the world. Just want to throw him in there with everybody else, and we have to loudly proclaim, "No, we'll not be a part of that. We're not. We, Christ is unique in his claims. He's unique in his being. He is unique in the salvation that he offers because, by his own declaration, he's the only way to God." Look at Jesus' conclusion. After he tells him, "You cannot discern the signs of the times. You can't see what's right in front of your face." What's he say? He says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Wicked and adulterous generation. To me, that has echoes of Proverbs chapter 30, verse 20, that speaks of the adulterous woman. He says, that text says, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. Jesus says, these who would come and demand things of the Most High God... They're wicked and adulterous. They thought they had done no wrong. You see, again, they they wanted things on their own terms. This is the sin as far back as Cain and Abel, right? Abel comes with a proper sacrifice. Cain comes with a sacrifice that was not acceptable to the Lord. And there's a lot of speculation about why that was. Most believe that Abel, because he tended the the herds, that he brought a sacrifice of an animal and that Cain brought a sacrifice of produce and that that was not acceptable to the Lord. We don't know that for certain, but that's what most scholars believe. And Cain is upset when God despises his sacrifice because Cain wanted to come and worship God on his own terms. And God said, no, 
Cain thought he had done no wrong because he refused to worship God in the way that God had designed. These Pharisees and Sadducees, they were the head of a group of people that had broken their covenant with God. They had denied the Messiah and they were self-righteous about it. He told them the only sign that would come to them after this was the sign of Jonah. Jesus referenced this back in the Matthew 12 passage in Matthew 12, 40 and 41. He said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He goes on to say, The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Jesus' death and resurrection, were the only that was the only sign left. Now hear me when I say, it's the greatest sign, and it is in fact the only one that we need. But for the Pharisees and Sadducees, it was not what they wanted to see. They expected a Messiah that was going to come and throw off the yoke of the Roman government and lead some sort of political revolution And that was not why Jesus had come. He had come to give victory not over the Romans, but over the tyrant that is sin and death. Jesus had come for that purpose. A greater than Jonah was in front of them, and a sign greater than Jonah's sign was coming. Jonah had preached in Nineveh reluctantly because he despised the Ninevites. And the greatest revival perhaps in history broke out in Nineveh. And he says they're going to rise up in judgment against this generation because the Lord himself was here proclaiming a greater sign, a greater person, because this is Jesus, the Messiah, God in the flesh. They would rise up and condemn because they would ignore when the Ninevites, these pagans, they, they fell under, the, under conviction at the preaching of the prophet Jonah. Friends, this is where we are in a lot of ways, a wicked and adulterous generation. We are in the midst of that even now. I would say we could properly say we've been in the midst of that ever since the time of Christ. A wicked and adulterous generation who in their hardness of heart reject the truth that is so plainly in front of their eyes. This is what Romans 1 tells us. The Apostle Paul writes to the Roman church in chapter 1 and verse 18 and tells us just how plain the the truth about God is even in nature. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world... His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The Apostle Paul says the the world itself proclaims not just that there's a God, but it tells about the attributes of God and who this God is. It points us to look for the one true God. And yet a wicked and adulterous generation would ignore all things. I listened to an interview recently of somebody who is really, by my assessment, from what I know of this 
person. They're a first-class pagan, but yet they're ones who would say, you can't look at the world without saying, something put this together. He said, you can't know anything about space and how all of that's going on without, without proclaiming. Somebody had to design this because if the moon was in a little bit different place or if we were just a little bit closer to the sun or a little bit farther away from the sun, none of this would work. Life would be unsustainable on this planet. And this is a, this is a pagan who, who may speak about the Bible a little bit, but he has, he has no understanding of the Scriptures. And even he looks and says, man, this thing's got pretty fine-tuned to be anything else but designed by a, a being of extreme higher intelligence than we are. Friends, this is where we are. We live in an adulterous, wicked and adulterous generation with more access to the truth than ever has been before. And you say, well, why is it that in the place right here in our country where the gospel is surely being proclaimed in many places right now on a Sunday morning, it's being proclaimed in the marketplace, it's being proclaimed all over the Internet. Man, you can find pre better preaching than you can imagine on the Internet any day of the week and twice on Sunday. If that's the truth, then why? Is the culture so wicked? Why is the world so wicked? It is because the hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their eyes. We must continue to proclaim. I don't condemn any of that. Hey, we put our messages out there and we get lots of people listening to our messages that never darken the door of our church. But I'm here to tell you that the thing that will save people through the proclamation of the word is not what I say, it's not what I do, it's not what any other preacher or church member or Christian says or does. It is the Spirit of God when He wills will move. And so we must be faithful in the proclaiming, understanding where we live in the midst of a wicked and adulterous generation. And so we must not get discouraged and just begin to say, God, if you just do this, I'd be more faithful. God, if you just do this, I, I think people would get saved. God is doing things in His own will, in His own way, and we must be willing to submit to that. Don't think just because God doesn't show up the way you want Him to show up doesn't mean that He didn't show up. God's working. God's moving. God's doing things. Friends, I'm here to tell you that the kind of the heart of global Christianity is shifting out of the West and it's headed East. That's the truth. We used to be the heart. I mean, for, for decades, the, the West, for centuries really, the West has been the heart of global Christianity. And we were the ones that sent all the missionaries. We were the ones that, 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 that sent people out and tried to plant churches and did missions and all this stuff. I'm telling you that there are more people coming to Christ now in Africa, in the Middle East, in South America than there are in North America and Western Europe. And the, 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 the central focus, the kind of the sending port... For global Christianity is headed east. You say, well, what should we do about that? Well, we should praise God that people are getting saved somewhere in the world, and we should continue to proclaim it here in our land. Because God will do what He wants to do. Send more missionaries, preach more sermons, plant more churches. We need to do all of those things. But we dare not say, because God's not doing it in my particular way, in my particular place, that that means God's not at work. I think God will do a work again in our land. I think it will happen. I believe, that. I believe it. I pray for it. I hope you pray for it. 
I pray God will do it in this church. I pray God will do it in this community. I pray God will do it in Arkansas and in the United States. I pray that a true great awakening will happen. I pray for that, but if it doesn't, God's still God. And so I don't demand, I don't want you to demand, I don't want me to be demanding God do a sign or even something smaller in your own life. Trust that God's at work even when He's not showing up on your terms. Notice how Jesus ultimately finishes this out. It says he departed. He told him, the only sign you're going to see is the sign of Jonah. And he departed. He didn't linger with those who would deny him. He didn't linger with those who would tempt him. He proclaimed the realities of the sign that was coming, and he got out of the way. He said, I'm getting out of here. Today I want you to know, I want you to understand something about the work of God in salvation and in revelation. Those that look to signs for personal assurance or persuasion, they simply need to be pointed to the singular sign of the cross. People say, well, I think God's doing this, I think God's doing that. I'm going to say, I'm going to tell you what God did. He did that. Well, I don't know, I wish God would do this, I wish God would do that. Let me tell you what God did do. God did that. God went to the cross. God died for sin. God went in the tomb and He rose from the grave. People say, boy, I sure wish God would do this. You just need to tell people, hey, God did that. God did that and that's all. That's all we need. That's sufficient for the day. It's sufficient for this day and the next day and all through eternity. When we get discouraged and we wish God would show up and, and, and show us a sign, we need to remind ourselves that there is a sign that echoes across the ages and it is the sign of a Savior on a cross. It is the sign of the Savior in a tomb and a Savior that walked out victorious over death and sin. Whenever we get down in our heart and we, we, we feel distant from God and we say God would you please show up we need to look at the book and remember what God has done Christian don't be so discouraged that you forget the magnitude of the cross of Christ don't go out and try to grab some other sign some other thing some other way some other path grab on to the cross of Christ Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. How did he author it? He authored it on the cross. How did he finish it? He finished it on the cross. And he's going to ultimately bring it all together in his return. I want to tell you today, we need no other sign than the sign of the cross and the empty tomb. And so when you start looking, when you start drifting, when the world out there wants you to prove this and prove that, you point them to the cross of Christ and you tell them that the cross of Christ screams out simply this message, repent and believe. Repent of your sins and believe on Christ. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus and His life and His death and His resurrection. Christian, we need no other sign. We have one. The Savior stretched out on the tree proclaiming it has been done. All that needed to be done is done. And He proclaimed that He walked out of the tomb. He walked out proclaiming that death has been defeated. Trust in that Savior. Trust in that sign. And it will sustain you from here all full on through glory. Point them to the sign of the cross. Point them to the sign of Jesus. Point them to all we need, which is the glorious gospel 
of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Tell them to repent and believe in that sign, and they too can be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the day. I pray that this word would have its work among us. I pray you'd strengthen us through it. I pray you'd encourage us in it that, Lord, we don't need some sort of extra revelation from you, Lord. We have your book. We don't need some other sign from you, Lord. We look and see the sign of Christ on the cross and the tomb being empty. Father, help us to trust in that for, because it's all sufficient. I pray you'd comfort the Christian with that truth. I pray you would convict the sinner who doesn't know you at all with that truth. And Lord, whatever may come, help us not become those who demand a sign, for you have given us the sign of your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. And amen. We'll ask you to stand for a time of invitation. If you need to pray in this altar, it's open to you. If you